Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. That sound you hear is the presidential election clock ticking louder and louder. Be still, my beating heart. 35 days until election day. The first debate is tonight, but we are already a third of the way through voting in many states. It's pretty screwy, right? If you think the Democratic primaries were a mess, then this is way worse. Absolute chaos, state by state, different rules. And, you know, collectively, I think we're going to have a real trouble, real big problem on our hands after election in understanding and overseeing those rules. When we are running the Democratic Party and government, maybe we can fix this. But for now, the corporate media frames tonight's debate as a crucial moment. Maybe it will be, maybe not. But there is a basic reality to keep in mind. First, ignore the media claim that Biden is ahead. National polls have nothing to do with this election. In fact, it can dissuade turnout when the gap is that wide, as the polls are saying. The next president will, of course, be decided by a handful of voters in a handful of states. Donald Trump defeated Hillary Clinton in the Electoral College by getting a total of 80,000 more votes than her in three states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. In Michigan, the margin was 10,704 votes. That is a margin of two-tenths of one percent. There is absolutely no poll precise enough to pick up that kind of margin. So don't even worry about the local polling either. American civics likes to think about elections as reasoned appeals to voters trying to decide on their favorite candidate. Yeah, okay, right, sure. I am sure that somewhere in Wisconsin tonight will be some worthy soul watching the debate to make up his or her mind. Actually, it's probably his mind on whether to vote for Trump or Biden, of course. But those voters are few and far between. This election will be decided by who does a better job of motivating the people who have already decided to vote for them to actually do it. It's about enthusiasm. So when you hear the candidates tonight, remember, they're not talking to most of us. But who are they talking to? Well, first, there is the electoral map. We know how California, New York, and Alabama will vote. There are maybe seven or eight states truly contested. The Rust Belt, as well as Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Arizona, and Florida. One thing that has made this election interesting is that Biden had several paths to win based on this map. And for a long time, it wasn't clear whether the Sun Belt or the Rust Belt was his best shot. We've talked about that on this show. One is by reversing those defeats in the Rust Belt from 2016 and winning Wisconsin and Michigan and Minnesota, but winning all three. But, could he, but he could also put together victories in Florida and Arizona. In fact, Biden has a real shot in Arizona, of all places. Arizona is McCain country, honor and country. I have a family member who collects guns, reads the Wall Street Journal every day, lives in Arizona, and is voting for Biden because he wants to see more dignity in the White House. That is a McCain Republican. And that is probably why Cindy McCain, the widow of former Senator John McCain and former GOP presidential candidate who ran against Barack Obama, it's probably why Cindy McCain supported and came out for Joe Biden. Frankly, I am not picking up that same vibe up north at all. Political campaign friends in Minnesota tell me that Democratic candidates there are in big trouble. And when they ask for help, from the national campaign or the party, they're not 
really getting the response needed. Some cases, crickets. This is a bad sign. Either the national campaign is dropping the ball the way that Hillary did in 2016, or the campaign knows exactly what it is doing and doesn't want to sink resources in a state that they believe is lost. Either way, the big point tonight is this is a very close election in a way that really matters. I am very worried about those Rust Belt states and I'm having trouble mobilizing optimism about Florida. In theory, Florida should be a golden opportunity for Biden. In fact, he's actually peaking with the golden voters. But thousands of Puerto Ricans have moved to Florida after being horribly mistreated by Donald Trump and his administration after Hurricane Maria. And they're supposed to be voting. And one of the great acts of enfranchisement in modern political history, Floridians voted to, to enfranchise former felons once they had completed their sentence. But in our sor sorry history of voter suppression, Florida holds a very, very outsized place. They do it right before your eyes without shame. After the voters gave approval, Florida Republicans have tried to take it away with impossible rules for what it means to complete your sentence. A formerly incarcerated Floridian has to show he paid all of his fees and fines to vote under the rules created by Republicans. But the state can rarely say what those fees and fines even are. So the hanging chat of 2020 could well be allegedly unpaid fees and fines by formerly incarcerated Floridians who thought they had been given the right to vote and then had it taken away. I really just don't have words for what a disgrace this is. I shudder at what the world will say this time if Florida is again the deciding state and the deciding votes are thrown out by a court because a group of former, former felons couldn't show that they'd paid essentially a poll tax. So while tonight might make good for a few days worth of good headlines, a couple of quickly turned around campaign ads, remember this election is already underway. The debates have come somewhat too late. Monmouth University released some polling numbers on the potential of the debate's impact. According to this poll, about three in four voters plan to tune in, but only 3% said that they are likely to be swayed. Just to put this in context, 80% of Arizonans vote early, and they have been for years. They're used to it. How many will be watching to decide tonight? How much of this is just for cable news ratings and drama? I have said it before, and I'll say it again. Trump and the GOP are thro throwing out dozens of tactics against the wall, not hoping one will stick, but hoping each tactic depresses a few voters here, a few voters there, from voting for Biden in these all too important states. This is why the left must mobilize. To defeat Trump's fascism, we must have an enthusiastic popular front. And yes, the burden is on Biden, but I am not waiting for the Biden campaign to stop fascism. I am doing all I can with my platform, with my ability to make phone calls to candidates that I like that are also dependent on higher turnout that normally happens in a presidential year. And if there's any indication from recent elections, turnout will be high. Postal service issues or not, Trump declaring victory on election night or not, enthusiasm is the greatest weapon against Donald Trump's dirty tricks. We have a great show today. We have Joshua Potish, who has been 
showing footage from across the nation during the uprisings. He has a great archive of, of footage, and he shares it on his social media account. If you don't follow him already on Twitter, I urge you to do so. Uh, it's really unlike any account that I have seen compiling this footage. And we also have Napoleon DeLegend, who is back for another round. We're going to be talking about the news of the day. But first, here are the stories at the top of my news feed today. The New York Times broke the news this weekend that Donald Trump paid $750 in income taxes for 2016, and absolutely nothing for 10 of the 15 years before. Americans took to Twitter to share their feelings as they learned that they paid more in taxes than the supposed billionaire president. They discussed their li lives as teenage minimum wage workers, undocumented workers, college students, and people living paycheck to paycheck. The right wing wants you to think that, oh, he's just being smart. But I'm looking at all those lawyers that he has paid to cover up and to fight off the IRS that's coming to get him. And my question right now is, was he running for president to create a cover so no one could come after him? That ultimately is a big question on my mind. Uh, if you have a chance to read through that article in the New York Times, and there's been some follow-ups, they are, they're long, uh, but they're doozies. Another news, Bernie 2020 surrogates and campaign managers of the Gravel campaign, more commonly known as the Gravel Teens, launched an institute yesterday to take on PragerU, a conservative organization that releases online content aimed to push a right-wing perspective. The Institute has hosts like Bernie Sanders, Chelsea Manning, Cornell West, Stephanie Kelton, among many others, and it's to push back against right-wing talking points and make cases for key leftist ideas. I think it's a great idea. I'm, I'm looking forward uh, to interviewing somebody from the Gravel Institute in coming days, and we will talk about it a little bit more. As the major city hit hardest by the global COVID-19 epidemic, New York City faces serious financial devastation. Its leaders predict difficulties for years to come if the federal government does not provide more relief. The city, also labeled an anarchist jurisdiction, currently reports an unemployment rate of 16%. That is double the rate of the entire country. The New York Times also reported a potential drop in personal income tax revenue of $2 billion. New York City, which is already under austerity, the government of New York City is waiting on aid from Washington, D.C. But while Trump has made it clear that he will not provide that aid, New Yorkers are fo forced to go without the federal support that they need in order to stay afloat. This is on the day that New York government has said that they are going to issue an extension to the uh, eviction moratorium until January. We have no sense of how large this crisis is. Uh, with unemployment that high up, I can only imagine how many people are going to be moving out of their homes because they can't afford it, or they feel unstable, or they can work other places that are less expensive, or they're being evicted. We are about, we are on the precipice of one of the largest financial, financial crises of our time. And New York generates more capital than any other city in this country, so the whole country should be paying attention to what happens in New York. And last, surprise, surprise, private healthcare companies are making more money than ever during the pandemic, even as austerity measures have stripped hospitals of their ability to provide full services and care. 
Meanwhile, Harvard Business School researchers found that a third of employees wouldn't be able to pay health care premiums in or after August. As government stimulus fails to bail out small businesses from financial ruin, American workers will lose their health care during a pandemic. It is more clear than ever that we cannot wait for Medicare for all. And we're going to continue to discuss that, especially in light of Trump's selection of Amy Coney Barrett as a Supreme Court pick. Lots on the line in this election. Uh, make sure to make those phone calls. Make sure to do whatever you can because every single vote matters, especially in those swing states, but definitely for the down ballot seats, even in blue states. They're relying on energy and enthusiasm, and there is just so much on the line. We have a great show. Uh, up next, we have our panel with Joshua Podish and Napoleon DeLegend. Stay around and stick around uh, right after the break. One thing that you look back on on history, um, where we've had these moments of potential, uh, you know, fighting off coups or uprisings and and major movement, working class movements being built. Right now, you know, the demographics are on our side, right? So in five years, great, we're going to have more Ilhans in Congress. We're going to have more Koi Bushes in Congress, um, hopefully. But you, you, we also have to. There's a cautionary tale here in that in the past, a lot of folks you know, went the path of least resistance, which is money-making. Napoleon, like, I mean, you, your, your family was so involved in movement. I mean, do you see similarities in, in past movement organizing and what happens right. to defeat them? Well, like, my father was from, from the Comoros Island. Very early when he was very young, he was a militant. And, and that's when France was colonizing the islands. So the islands belonged to France. He was a part of a socialist party called the Pasofco. And um, they, there were several attempts on his life and everything like that. But often what would happen is people who are part of the team start acting kind of weird and kind of shady. And you don't know what type of backdoor deals are being made, who's being paid, who, who's promised favors. And and it let it let my dad he he had to he had to leave to France. His family told him to leave because they they tried to kill him a few times. But my thing is that this is politics. This is the game we're playing. It's a dirty game. Like you you watch Netflix shows like House of Cards, you see how dirty it is. It's the dirtiest game there is. So when when you see something somebody like Tulsi who who garnered such a big base, a, a sizable base. I'm not gonna say it's huge. It's nothing like Bernie or anything like that. She mm -hmm. couldn't get any type of real victories in the primary, but she does have a following. And her switch like that, you realize that it is something that happens. And I think we should be men mentally prepared and and look out for people switching. You know, going from left to more of a center position, and mm -hmm. some right, sometimes all the way to the right. And in her case all the way to QAnon type, type 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 domains. And it's important because these people, they try to throw salt in the game and create confusion, and we're distracted fighting amongst ourselves instead of keeping our, our eyes on a prize. Joshua, you know, you're, um, you've become an incredible resource for folks uh, to know what's happening in Portland, what's happening across the country when it comes to these uprisings. And, and of course, there's been footage that you've, you've shared um, where folks have captured Actives being rounded up uh, by whether it's police or ICE or who knows who. Um, how much do you think that we're actually seeing? Like, I don't know how much you're sharing compared to what's being shared with you. Like, I, I assumed you're hearing a lot of stuff happening on the ground. 
Um, specifically of activists being targeted, you mean? Yeah, or, uh, disruptions in the movement to break apart these, yeah, leaders. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what happens when leaders become visible and vocal is that, like Napoleon mentioned, they get targeted in various ways. Um, what we see with Tulsi is maybe a, sometimes an easier tactic of, of fracturing without um, blatantly targeting and arresting people. But we're also definitely seeing targeted arrests of activists. I mean, the most heinous example for me is what happened to some of the leaders out in Ferguson, where in the, what, six years now since the uprising there, there's been, I mean, the most mild way to put it is extremely suspicious deaths of numerous leaders out there. Um, and more recently, yeah, targeted arrests. You know, I was at a protest maybe two weeks ago now in New York, and we were outside the 34th precinct, and the first person they went for is a black woman who's an organizer. You know, and she's a known organizer. Her face is out there, and uh, and there's facial they're using facial recognition too. Uh, I know, yeah, I know. Certain cities are trying to ban it for that reason, and a lot of yeah. people, you know, talking about the importance of wearing masks or covering your face for that reason. But it's also a difficult thing with our culture, and I mean, people throw the word "cloud" around a lot, but just basically people whose names and faces are out there on social media and who are seen at. You know, certain people are seen on the mic at protest after protest, and the police are on their social media. The police, I mean, the NYPD is always out there filming us when we're when we're protesting. Um, yeah, they know. I mean, they know who the leaders are, and they try to target them, and it's, they don't hide that. They don't hide that. Um, I remember, I don't know if either of you were at Standing Rock. This sounded like cuckoo when I was at Standing Rock, but they kept coming through and saying, like, listen, we don't know who's here. We don't know. I mean, there were a lot of folks that were coming out from everywhere around the country. I was stopped actually, I was there reporting. And um, when you go to Standing Rock, you know, you, you have to take this very long drive and kind of like a quiet, they make you take this other, well, they made me take this other road around, which which is a much longer drive, but then there are checkpoints and there's a checkpoint going into Standing Rock. And I got this cop on camera um, <laughs> because he wasn't, he wasn't gonna let press through. And I was like, are you sure? And I was there actually with two different groups um doing reporting and i mean it was it was crazy to me what they were doing to try to minimize exposure openly knowing very well that like this was you know obama was still president uh this or no it wasn't <laughs> just kidding that was trump was no no obama was still president it was correct it was, it was there in november so you know it's just it, it's mind-blowing to me um that this much is happening and yet it's happening so quickly that we don't even have a minute to register it and fight it because we're moving on to the next fight. It's pretty scary. So I, I want to um, I want to share this video that happened in Hamburg, New York, which is outside of Buffalo, in Western New York. Um, I grew up in Western New York, so uh, a part of Western New York was actually labeled the most racist town in America recently. Um, it's it's very unfortunate, but uh, this video was taken, Dorsey, um, in which they were, well, you'll see. I'll, I'll explain. Can we expand it a little bit?
off with the fact that, um, you know, we have our criticisms of Andrew Cuomo, uh, very right, but, but, but a mock lynching of Andrew Cuomo, um, QAnon pushed, and you have a Republican who, just for background, this is a man, uh, Chris Jacobs, is, comes from a very wealthy family, very, very wealthy family. They started a company that sells goods in stadiums, like food distribution. It's called Delaware North, which is an intersection in, in the city of Buffalo. Um, they're a household name. They're like a family. I wouldn't say Trump. They're like centrist Republican types. And they're showing up to a QAnon event. This is, this is, I mean, I don't know if this is like what the Republican Party is telling them to do to excite the base, but, you know, when they're, when the centrist Republicans are moving that far to the right and the centrist Democrats are being pushed that far to the left when they're not, <laughs> I mean, it's just a very strange um, and dangerous situation. Uh, Napoleon, like, I mean, what, how... How bad is it getting? How bad do you think QAnon really is right now? I don't even know if we're supposed to say this on YouTube. I think it might we might get pinged for it, but well, I, I think it's I think it's that their message has resonated with a with a with a lot of people, and, and especially people that are feel disenfranchised or are kind of like don't really follow politics or anything like that, and uh, they have a clear scapegoat. You know, it's like the elite pedophiles of the world and this and that. Like you know, they have this this imaginary enemy when. Instead of seeing like the reality of the broken system, which is right in front of their face, people rather have like this this imaginary monster to point their finger at and to rally around. And and the funny thing with with, with that group, it's I see it popping up in Germany. I see I see some people sharing it on Twitter who are French, and I'm like, so so that their message is getting around. So I think it's effective. The thing is, it, it, it's it's Trump's fault because. To me, like the buzzword of 2020 is normalizing. Trump normalized this type of behavior, like this type of extreme, you know, let's fire up people in any way we can. And I think that family who are, you say are more centrist are just seeing that, look, this is working right now. Let's, mm -hmm. let's, let's, let's give people some more meat because they love it. Mm. And Nate McMurray, let, let's just, you know, he's running against him. So if you don't know who Nate McMurray is, go check him out because this this was, you know, mind-blowing to me. Um, Joshua, what do you think? I agree with what Napoleon said. I think what you have is that in a two-party system, all you need is a majority of one party to dictate that party, right? So a majority of registered Republicans is not actually that huge percentage of this country. You get 25% of this country to be rabid, MAGA, QAnon, registered Republicans, they control the centrist Republicans now. Yeah. I mean, not obviously there's a handful of people who break away from that, but it's like 20 people who are, you know, these Lincoln Project type people who are against Trump. But yeah, obviously that's, that's a tiny, tiny sliver. The majority are just moving right, like you said. So you get these centrist Republicans who are now essentially controlled by, by QAnon because they're responding to their the majority of their party, which... Yeah, I've done a little researching into like the QAnon side of the web and it is, I mean, that video is the tip of the iceberg. Like they are essentially funneled in. They start with things like pedophilia, which is obviously a horrible thing, right? And is engaged in by Epstein and probably Donald Trump and other, you know, people who are not these this imaginary class of whoever, just solely democratic elites or whatever. Yeah. Um, but then they funnel them into really, really absurd things. I mean, there's philosophies about JFK and aliens and clones. And 
Yeah, it's a really, and it's odd how, like Napoleon said, all that is somehow much easier to believe than the simple fact that this is essentially an oligarchy and that their leaders are betraying them constantly. Because um, that's that's a scary reality. It's scarier than than scapegoats. So. Yeah, no, I mean, in, in 2016, it was about the Mexicans are taking your jobs. I'm going to build a wall. We were, okay, well, that's that went out the door. And now it's the aliens are like, what? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> totally batshit. But uh, yeah, okay. So on that note, um, another alternative reality. Uh, Eric Trump went on Fox and Friends. and <laughs> Let's play that clip real quick. <laughs> She says that her colleagues at work, it wouldn't go well with them. She lives in Manhattan. Yeah. She's in her 50s. Secret she, Trump voter. That's right. She is, uh, she's gay. She second. said her 401. Uh, this is, she's talking about, um, this Fox and Friends host is talking about a an op-ed that was written. Um, and sh this woman that she's mentioning was referenced in this. Uh, we'll play the rest. Yeah. K went up with your dad, 19.6% gas prices, uh, better than they were under Obama. She goes on to say that Obamacare was $560 a month for her, and she had lost her job, so she was priced out. She talks about crime in the neighborhood. She talks about Bill de Blasio and how he's uh, inept, uh, that the Russia, Trump, Russia thing, the Clinton's fingerprints are all over it. Um, she calls Joe Biden weak. Is this? But she doesn't want to use her last name. And there are a lot of people that might be voting for your dad that aren't admitting it. And uh, and it was Brett Stevens who's been a critic of of your uh, dad who wrote the editorial. So are you yeah. counting on this person on the secret voter? Hey, Ainsley, that person's there. I'm telling you, I see it every day. The LGBT community, they are incredible. And you should see how they've come out in, in full force for my father every single day. I'm part of that community, and we love the man. And thank you for protecting our neighborhoods, and thank you for, for protecting our cities. Do you guys think he knows what LGBT means? <laughs> I would hope so, man, because <laughs> if he doesn't, that would be crazy. But, you know, it, it seemed like, like a Freudian slip. Maybe he's trying to tell us something we don't know yet. The, the question is, does that community accept him? Because, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> if he's part of that. I don't think you really know the sentence he just strung together. <laughs> right. I think, I, you know, there's like these sound blocks, sound bites that they just put together. Like, there's a community, and I like community, and I'm part of the community. <laughs> right. And they're protecting us, and danger, danger. Oh, by the way, Brett Stevens, he's a Republican who hated Trump. Oh, funny, until last week when he got his Supreme Court nominee pick that he wanted. I mean, that's the danger of of dancing with these Republicans is that they're not loyal to you. They don't donate to you. They didn't organize for you. They're going to cut a deal. And if a better deal comes along, they're going to take, like, you know? You know who cuts deals well? Donald Trump. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. There's an update to the Eric Trump story. What am I hearing? We have some breaking news. Waiting for it. Oh, here we go. New York oh. Post. Trump <laughs> also affirmed that he's not bisexual. He had to make it clear. Wait, that's... Oh, because he has a wife. Got it. I'm trying to figure out, like, where... Why, why you would say bisexual, not gay. Okay, got it. I'm so glad that we got this information out there. So it's been settled. He is not bisexual. He also did not say he's not gay. I understand the words coming out of his own mouth. No, he does not. Um, I mean, all right, that, so... Does that come across as a little bit desperate that they're trying to reach out to the LGBTQ community? Like, 
at this point. I mean, what, what were they called? What were the old ones called? The Log Cabin Republicans? Oh, okay, I never heard of it. I mean, I don't know how much of a popular... That was like a 90s thing. Right. Um, so here's uh, the big question. Is the debate going to make a difference tonight? What do you guys project in here? Let's go to Joshua first. It's not going to make much of a difference to me. Um, <laughs> I... I am baffled by the people on the fence. I know they exist. Um, I, I don't see Biden successfully reaching out to people on the left who aren't going to vote for him. I can't. I haven't seen concessions that would be necessary yeah. for that. Um, people in the middle, I think it could make a difference to people in the middle. I mean, I think he'll probably try to hammer this tax thing, which pisses off a lot of Americans. I mean, I was a high school teacher paying more in taxes than a made up fake, you know, con man billionaire um, who had somehow became president. Um, uh, I, I think it could make a difference. Um, I just don't know what Biden's debate performance is going to be like. I don't know. I don't think Hillary was able to uh, powerfully shut down the nonsense that came out of Trump because I think Trump is at, it's kind of like what we were just talking about with these people. Um, you can't really, it's like a deal with the devil if you try to play on their terms. Right. Um, and I, I think we, I think Biden, I hope his debate prep involves not letting Trump dictate the terms. But again, I don't know. I mean, Napoleon, it's, it's, it's interesting you say that because there has to be something, some way to break through the armor of Trump. Like, yes, he's Teflon Don, and yes, he's playing by like, like they have to, they're trying to win over a small group of voters. The question is, who are those voters and and what actually works? I mean, if you had to pick one strategy to defeat Donald Trump, what would you go with? No pressure. Well, like uh, the base strategy for Biden? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think, I, I, I think Biden needs to should keep try to keep him on his heels. It's like he has so much material. It's, yeah. Trump, Trump, all Trump could do is going to say, yo, Biden's been hiding. Biden's not all there in his head. If Biden's team, I think it's going to be a battle of coherence. Who's going to mm -hmm. win, win the coherence war tonight? If Biden <laughs> is coherent, I, to me, I have low expectations about Biden. I don't, I don't, I, he, he could easily exceed my expectations personally, right? I know Trump is going to just throw uh, mud at him, but I think Biden it could keep him on his heels. He got all the material in the world. He's been president. He's been at the wheel for four years. There's coronavirus, there's unemployment, there's uh, riots every other week. Like, what kind of country is this? Like, look look at what's going on. You were in charge. You promised all this. This is what happened four years later. Drill that down and keep him on his heels and keep him on the defensive. I think that would be the best the best way I would, I would go at it. And there's no wall. Your one promise. He couldn't even do it. <laughs> exactly. Oh, wait, there was a wall. You just named it the Trump wall. Got it. Yeah, he built 200 feet somewhere in the middle of a of Arizona somewhere. You know what I mean? Come on. I know. It's <laughs> like that. Ridiculous. I mean, it is absolutely ridiculous. Okay, so but, but we have these debates, and we've, um, at the top of the show, and just as, a, as an update to folks, I just got word that we had a little bit of a, I don't know, for some reason, um, the connectivity through YouTube went out at the beginning of the show, but uh, I did talk. Hopefully, we can get the footage up there. Um, and we had a really great daughter talking about uh, the challenges to the ACA and, and how to push forward Medicare for all if Biden does win in the middle of a pandemic. Like, what, what would that transition look like and how could you do it quickly? Because uh, the ACA was a long transition. So, um, you know, he will inherit, Biden could inherit uh, this 
insane pandemic, and we expect the ACA to be brought up during this debate. Um, it's one thing to say, let's preserve the ACA, but it is tied to employment. And in New York City, 16% uh, unemployment today. That was what was announced, that we have hit, in New York, 16% unemployment. So Joshua, I mean, what is the right approach to like saying, okay, yeah, the healthcare system, we need it, but also, you know, we gotta, we gotta I mean, Biden's stuck. He can't criticize his key piece of legislation that his, the Obama-Biden administration passed. I mean, to me, the best solution is pretty simple. Tax the crap out of rich people. And you don't have to criticize ACA, just saying we're just say we're going to improve it so that everybody gets health care. <laughs> um, and if Biden wins, I would presume that means the Senate has been flipped as well. Um, and, you know, the House supermajority. Um, mm -hmm. that, so that, that's a simple solution to me. Now, I don't know if he's willing to tax rich people. Um, you know, you talk about New York, Cuomo, we know billionaires have made billions more during this pandemic while average people have 60% unemployment. And especially like black and brown communities, people are, I mean, in this city, I, I live in Queens. So uh, to me, the solution is simple. Is the political will to upset rich people there? I, I don't know. Well, and, and, and it's crazy, like also today they, came out that there's record profits from health insurance companies. So one of the questions I'd asked Wendell Potter um, was, if health insurance companies know they're going to lose money because unemployment is going to be so high, why are they pushing so hard still? Like, what not there, there's got to be room for compromise. I mean, it, it, there seems like there's an opening there, right? Like, Napoleon, what, what, what do you think we, I mean, it, it, what do you think Biden should be doing, like, right now? I think what Biden should be doing is, is, is talking about Medicare for all. And, and, and like like Joshua said, he can simply just say, look, the system is there. When I come in, we're going to improve it because there's problems and we didn't expect COVID to come. There's a pandemic. Things have to be done. It's really easy. Sometimes, though, I don't expect much from 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 his type of Democrats because it feels like they got an electric collar that, that they zap every time that the insurance companies zap every time they mention Medicare for all. But the, the, the solution would be simple. That's what would make people happy all across the board. Now, is he is he going to be able to do that? Because like you said, it's an easy sell. The insurance companies have no business if everybody is unemployed. Mm -hmm. So you might as well uh, expand the system so 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 it could keep functioning and help the, the most people. I mean, it's, it, it seems like the likely solution, but then there were also, there's also this, this worry that the transition is going to take too long um, and that the ACA had a horrible launch, took them five years, that was bungled. And, and as a result, you know, of course, the Republicans and the Tea Party rose, rose to power. Hopefully we're on the opposite side of that now, hopefully. I don't know. Um, all right. So just, just I want to ask you guys, because I've been asking folks, what races, what parts of the country are you watching right now? as we are 35 days away from the election. Joshua. I, I mean, as you mentioned earlier, I've been watching the streets more. Um, it just my, that's where I am uh, when, when things are happening in New York. Um, I mean, there's a lot of center races that are extremely important um, and I've been watching them. I just, I'm not convinced that the presidential election will be anything remotely like free and fair. <laughs> um, and so my number one priority is preparing to push back if 
if the fascists try to steal the election. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the number one priority for me. Everything else to me feels like a landslide victory would be tremendous. That, that would be great in a lot of ways. Um, it's just odd for me to see people who are convinced, you know, for example, like liberals, uh, moderate Democrats, um, who are convinced that Russia stole the 2016 election, but aren't focusing on planning for the fact that Trump might try to steal this election. It just it just confuses me a bit. Um, you know, plus this Supreme Court nomination, we all know what happened in 2000. Um, there's a decent chance this goes to the court again, a rigged court, essentially. So that's where that's where I'm focusing my attention. Um, but there's a lot of important Senate and other elections out there. So on the streets right now, I mean, are is the energy decreasing or is, or is it being disrupted? I mean, what what's this? We can have these little beats, these moments that blow up, um, but to sustain them for a long period of time, especially into an election, which is still 35 days away, do you feel like there's still that energy there? I think there is. I think it definitely comes in waves. I mean, obviously, it's not June anymore. Um, there's not tens of thousands in every major city. But, I mean, the night of the farce that was the Attorney General of Kentucky's announcement about Breonna Taylor's case, uh, that night, you saw thousands in many cities. Um, tomorrow, apparently, grand, more grand jury information is going to be made public because he reportedly lied about or withheld information about the grand jury uh, oh, yeah. evidence. Uh, and so I, I think it's going to come in waves. You know, I think this Supreme Court thing is going to bring another kind of Kavanaugh-esque situation in D.C. where you see lots of people in the streets. Um, and I basically choose to have faith that on November 4th or 5th, or it, that if the election is is contested or if he tries to steal it, I have faith that people will turn out. They, whether we can sustain that in November is a big question, but um, amongst the many, many, many implications of the amazing Black Lives Matter movement this summer, uh, one of the many implications is that hundreds of thousands of Americans know a whole lot more about protests now. Um, and have networks and people and organizations. And so I, you know, I, I can't read the future, but I know the momentum is not gone. Then, Napoleon, um, what are you looking at right now? Well, the only things I, I, I'm looking at, like the, the, the more uh, big ticket items. I don't know. I don't I don't know all the specifics, but uh, Shahid Buttar is running against uh, Pelosi. Right. And there's um, is Mitch McConnell running against uh, Amy not? McGrath. Yeah, there you go. I mean, that's because they're the biggest names, to be honest with you. I would love to see them get knocked off. I don't know how they're doing. It's not like I'm monitoring from close, but it would be great if even one of them could like take it because it, it, it would be a big deal. And Shahe Buttar, I mean, one thing uh, he, he he's also a Democrat. So there's a unique dynamic there in that she he was able to get through the the, New York, the California jungle primary, which the top two contenders face off and they're on the same party. And I mean, I think this is going to be a great opportunity to see what kind of uh, weight and muscle the movement can flex um, in a district that's progressive, but, you know, a little bit more corporate-y than, than what, you know, probably the media wants to portray it as. But I mean, this could be a crazy election where folks that never vote are suddenly voting and are pissed off that Congress has done nothing. And who is a better emblem of that than Nancy Pelosi? So we'll definitely be watching it close. Um, guys, I, I, 
I appreciate your work. He's sticking around a little bit later. We had some technical glitches. I still don't really know what happened, so we'll see. Uh, for those of you who are watching, hopefully we'll be able to get the first half of the show up. Um, great interview with Wendell Potter, and I and my and I did a monologue on sort of the days uh, the the news of the day and what I predict with the debates. But uh, if that monologue doesn't go up, I will do it again for you, so you know what to watch during the debates and why it matters or doesn't matter. It's kind of a big question. Do the debates matter or do they not matter? I will say, teaser, if there's one debate that matters, it's this one, not the rest of them. So you're going to have to stick around for that. Uh, thank you, guys. Joshua Potish, you got to check out his Twitter uh, where he's posting all this footage. It's amazing. If you're not following him already, it's, it's really incredible. It's a great archive. Um, and, of course, Napoleon de Legend, recurring guest. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you all. Make sure to click like and subscribe because this show, I don't know what's going on. YouTube, I don't, are they punishing us? We don't know. Uh, but I know that Google had some glitches earlier, you know, this week, so maybe it's about that. But make sure to click like and subscribe and thank you all for joining in the chat and we will see you tomorrow at 3 p.m. Eastern with the one and only Bhaskar Sankara who's going to be talking about the 10-year anniversary of Jacobin. All right, we'll see you tomorrow.